Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed, I'm Ann Romer. Coming up on the show, Epic Campsites quiet park space, and inside libraries of the future. But we begin with the importance and the value of 911. Here's Kevin Frankish. This week, York Regional Police released video and audio of a 911 call that resulted in a possible impaired driver being taken off the road. Require police fire ambulance. I'm on the road right now, and there's a pickup truck. I think he's drunk or something because he just hit the curb. Okay. I passed him. I think he might be drunk or something. It looks like he's just mounting the curb and parking. Hi there, how are you? I'm lost. You're lost? Yeah. Okay, where are you supposed to be going? I'm, uh, I'm living in uh, Toronto. Okay. I'm here, but I don't know the man was eventually charged with impaired as well as driving with a suspended license. Now, this was a good use of using 911, but often people abuse this vital service. Right now on the feed, I begin a two-part series spending time at York Regional Police 911 Communications, hoping to give you a better idea of what happens here and why some calls are wasting their time and perhaps putting lives in jeopardy. My name is Lindsay O'Quinn. My position here is the assistant manager of 911 Communications. Lindsay, what is the, the one thing, if you, on your wish list, could tell everybody at home about 911? If everybody could understand just how important that resource is and how we need to make sure those lines are kept free for the purposes of emergencies. Okay, so I've got, a, I've got a neighbor who has a noisy stereo. Am I calling 911? Uh, no. I mean, York Regional Police is happy to help out in those situations, but we do have non-emergency lines, and we do have online reporting systems to take care of those calls. Uh, specifically, we're looking for crimes in progress, your medical assistance, um, anything where there is a threat to somebody's life. I'm alone at home. I hear a noise. I'm scared. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we would expect that you use those lines so that our officers are able to respond and prioritize that type of call to ensure what's going on. I mean, our 911 communicators will stay on the line with that type of call and help get more information, give some you know, information back to the caller that explains um, how they should respond in that type of situation. Um, but absolutely, absolutely, that is, that's acceptable. <laughs> Uh, okay, let me let me try and find another scenario. Yes. Okay, I'm driving along and there's some guy tailgating me. That's a hard one. Yeah. Obviously, there is going to be a threshold of somebody's um, assessment of what is a life-threatening emergency. Um, incidents that occur in mobile cars and vehicles, they do become very life-threatening, especially when uh, emotions run high. Mm -hmm. um, situations that could indicate somebody's tailgating you and you believe that there's an impairment the driver that there's some sort of drug alcohol use uh, medical uh, assistance required absolutely that is what 911 is for and essentially we're asking people to do something people don't do very well and that is use common sense sometimes that is fair that is fair to tie to try and uh, evaluate is this an emergency i mean we do want to hear we do want to support the community but there is just multiple facets to do that there are cases where people call 911 because they didn't get their burger right. 
at that, a restaurant. That is true. That is true. Uh, people will use 911 as a quick asset, access to police in all types of different problematic situations. Um, what we do need to prioritize, though, is that it is for preservation of life. So conceivably, you didn't get cheese on your hamburger or it came with pickles and you didn't want it with pickles. You call 911, which you don't. But it's possible someone who could be having a heart attack maybe waiting on the line. Absolutely. Those calls get answered as they come in. And if that cheeseburger call comes in before that heart attack call, then you could be waiting. What kind of calls are you getting? Tell me the silliest. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> a hard because one. there's a lot? There's Well, there's a lot, but um, there's so many sometimes it's hard to remember. It's hard to, uh, it, It's tough, too, because I'm asking you to detail things, but everything is a case-by-case -case scenario. Yes. And people like black and white, and they like, I call this, I don't call this. We come back to that common sense. And the last thing you want to do is ever discourage anyone from calling 911 if they're questioning. Absolutely. If there is a question, you call. We have um, mechanisms in place where we can take people off those lines if need be but we do need to keep those lines clear. Um, if there's ever a question, you always escalate on the side of caution. However, that common sense piece does come into play and there will be um, certain situations that one should be able to evaluate um, what line to use. We have so many communication devices, whether it is our phone, whether it's our computer, whether it's our alarm system at home that calls 911 sometimes automatically, even by mistake. What should I do if that happens? I, because my first reaction is, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and I hang up. Right. Please don't. Okay. Uh, if you do, if your phone or your watch or uh, whatever mm -hmm. electronic device does come through on the 911 line, please stay on the line. Um, our call takers do have a responsibility of calling every one of those calls back, and we have to make sure that you are safe. We respond to every call that comes in on those lines. So they're spending the time, again, calling, trying to make sure that you're safe, that, that someone hasn't grabbed the phone from you. Uh, and meantime, again, we get into that scenario, someone who might be having a heart attack on the other line or is actually in life-threatening situation yes. might have to wait a little bit longer. So it's better to stay on the line and say, sorry, I made a mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's better to stay on the line, complete that call. Um, otherwise, we will be calling back. We will be calling back and looking for that phone. What do I teach my kids about 911? Teach your kids to know where they are always know where they are and what phone number they're calling from. Um, a little bit, if one calling 911, a little bit about what the situation is, but we can pretty much help you in any circumstance as long as we know where you are. And with cell phones, you might get a general idea. It's not like 911 when you call from a landline that gives you the exact address. With cell phones, you can narrow it down, but, but not always exactly where you might need the help. Uh, depending on the device and depending on your security settings, your privacy settings, yes. Um, sometimes we can get a GPS coordinate, but a lot of the times we can't. Uh, what children do need to know, especially parents with small children, is that old handsets that still have a battery and no active SIM card will still tie up a 911 line. Yes, because the cell phone companies don't want you to know that. That's so right. any phone that you have, now you may have let the service lapse on it, um, it still will function with 911 even though it is out of the service area or just not not serviced. Right, and that actually causes quite a bit of problems for us as we try to locate those phones as we don't get that GPS coordinate. Mm -hmm. So knowing where you are, there's also a frustration where you keep talking to me 
and you keep asking me questions. My house is on fire. And you're is, is everybody out? Yes, everybody's out. Send the fire department. Uh, you know, is anybody hurt? No, nobody's hurt. We just send the fire department. What, yes. what do we need to know there? Um, so what we do need to know is that there are three different services that can respond to a 911 call. So here we respond to police, but there is ambulance and fire, and we all have procedures in order to help you into the safety that you need. Um, there will be questions asked, and what we're trying to do is coordinate those emergency responses before getting there so we send the right stuff at the right time. And it's not a case as well that you you ask all the questions and then send the fire trucks and the, the ambulance. So meantime, while you're asking the questions, you've already typed in and somebody else has already sent the troops. Absolutely. The call takers add information as you're saying it. It will display on a dispatcher's screen who will coordinate that police response. Let me get to a, let's get personal, Lindsay, a, a bit of your personal experiences. Do you get overwhelmed sometimes? Do you take it home with you sometimes? Because essentially you're first on scene in, in a lot of traumatic situations and you're hearing people on the other end. It could even be one of your own officers. Do you take that home with you? Um, absolutely. There's always um, the human aspect of the job that we do. Um, we in communications don't have the luxury of, um, you know, taking a, a, an hour long break after each call, that kind of thing. We have to go on to the next. So that stress does come home at times. Um, we have built in a lot of strategies and supports in our organization that help to deal with those, you know, tragic calls and calls that do. Is there a certain call or a couple of calls that are outstanding? How long have you been in this business? In this business, I've been doing this for 23 years. Tell me about your hardest day here at work. One of the hardest days uh, was actually when we were in our old backup center um, and we were responded to a call for a domestic situation that turned out to be a triple homicide involving uh, a female and her two children. Uh, it was the husband, father of the family responsible and it was a very difficult response from communications just from the nature of the incident at that time. Technology was very different. Uh, the members involved calling into communications. Um, it was a hard day in the sense of the type of calls that we responded to. There was multiple incidents that day that kind of perpetuated the stress levels. Um, however, the platoon at the time was probably one of the strongest platoons that uh, I've ever seen work together. And us working together and managing that call was probably the most impactful day I've ever worked. Because people have to realize that the caller is depending on you. Your officers on the scene are depending on you. Paramedics, fire, anybody else who's responding is, is, is depending on you as well. At the same time, you're a human being. Do you have kids? I have stepped in, yes. And so you, you can sort of empathize with this person. Yes. It must be tough sometimes to, to, to keep that calm, sobering attitude. It is tough. Um, we manage. We, uh, we train for it. It is what we do. Um, the longer we do it, we get better at it. I would say what does cause uh, a lot of the stress is, is just what you touched on, is sending your officers into those situations. We build relationships with the frontline officers that we work with. Um, it causes us stress when we know we're sending them into a stressful situation. Um, and just having that conversation back and forth and understanding just how volatile those incidents are. Okay. Well, Lindsay, thank you for your service. Um, for all of the communicators here, it, it, an incredible job. And they literally are the first line of defense for pretty well 
any incident, anything that causes us trauma in our lives out on the streets of York Region. So thank you for what you do and for what all of these wonderful people do. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Next week on The Feed, part two, we talk with the dispatchers, getting their stories and their emotions. When we come back, the best campsites, according to Scouts Canada. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I love this next story. Perfect for a summer weekend. Here's the headline. Scouts Canada definitively declares Canada's most epic camping sites and hidden gems you've never heard of. 46,704 scouts and volunteers were surveyed, and I think you're going to like the results. Joining us with more is Michael Nabesny with Scouts Canada. Hey, welcome to the feed. Michael, how long have you been with Scouts Canada? Uh, thank you so much. Yes, I've been a scout since 2006 when I would have been uh, a kindergartner. And your role as Council Youth Commissioner for White Pine, what does that mean? So it really means that I'm responsible for developing youth leadership and youth engagement in my council specifically, uh, which is a region that we've set up in the greater Toronto area. So the survey that we're discussing, Scouts Canada definitively declares Canada's most epic camping sites and hidden gems you've never heard of. Why was this survey conducted? Um, well, really, the trends have been pointing that since the pandemic especially, uh, a lot more Canadians are really looking to get outside and get camping and to try it, even if they've never tried it before. In fact, according to our survey, 43% of respondents have said that even though they have never been interested in camping before, they are interested in camping this summer. Hmm. And I think if it's Scouts Canada approved, uh, then why not? So let's take a look at some of the highlights, the key findings of the survey. So number one, the most epic campsite. Number one in that survey was Jasper National Park, Alberta. But an Ontario provincial park came in third. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so that would be Algonquin Provincial Park. I have personally been there many times. It's a great park. Um, it's really one of those gems that you can really get away from the urban environment that we have in a lot of Ontario, uh, where you're really alone with nature. If, if that country is your thing, there's that country sites, there's, there's lakes, there's themes, it's on the Canadian field, so you get like you have the nice granite, and it's really just an epic place to sit, and, and you feel so disconnected from everything. How about hidden gems, campsites that you've probably never heard of? There is, again, something quite exciting in Ontario. Uh, yeah, there is. There's, there's lots. I've been to Bon Echo. Bon Echo is a great park, uh, especially I, I love canoeing. Bon Echo is great for canoeing. You've got these scenic cliffs. But whatever you want, they've got it there at Bon Echo, whether it's car camping, whether it's more of the rugged backcountry adventure. It's really a great site for everyone. So this one's pretty cool. Screensaver worthy. What makes a campsite a dream spot? In the survey, what was number one? Well, that's just it, Anne, is being able to sit there and have that picturesque panoramic view that would be worthy of your screensaver. And this isn't something that just a few people indicated. This is something that 85% of our respondents indicated was a make or break for them in finding their perfect campsite location, was being able to sit there and just breathe it all in with the panoramic system. What about being close to the water? How important is that? 
Um, so being close to water was, uh, I came up second, I believe, at 54% of people saying that they wanted it. And that, that really doesn't surprise me because water isn't just for activities. It's not just for canoeing and kayaking and swimming. It's also an essential part of camping. That if you want to get up in the mornings, you don't want to have to hike somewhere to get water to make your coffee. You want to be able to make coffee right now to get drinking water. Um, so so that, that doesn't surprise me at all. And yet activities and having access to things to do other than, you know, going a, a kilometer to get some water, that's pretty important when it comes to a dream spot, having things to do. It, it is to a certain extent, but you have to remember that a lot of people looking to go camping don't want to be busy all the time. It's a vacation. You want to be able to sit and relax and have a fire, sit around the fire. You want to be able to sit and look at that panoramic spot you found. So it is important, but I think that that's probably why it was a little further down on the list. <laughs> there was a question in the survey, where have Canadians actually camped? And I am really pleased to see that at least two Ontario provincial parks showed up in this survey. Uh, yeah, so uh, we've had um, a vast degree of campsites in Ontario at which our, our youth and our members have camped. The, the truth is that within Scouting, we have a vast range of, of people people who want, have never been camping before and are going for the first time, and people who've been average fans their whole life. So it's great to see that no matter who you are, you've been able to get outdoors and to really enjoy the camping experience. So another aspect of the survey, the scouting community is driven to camp. Almost 60% of respondents said a drive-in camping site is their preference. That's interesting. I personally would, if I'm going to go camping, I'd rather paddle in rather than drive in. Uh, honestly, yeah, that's the thing for me. Canoe camping for me is, is what I love the most. It's not always doable when you have small families, though. Uh, with, with my, uh, with, within scouting, a lot of our members are, are in that, that younger age of, of grade one, grade two, elementary school. Uh, and when you have a family, especially if you have more siblings or a larger family, doing that for the first time isn't always the greatest idea. Like, don't get me wrong, I love canoe camping, but it's something that you need to be more sure of your skills in and really have it all planned out before you go. If you're looking for a spur of the moment weekend getaway, you can go driving, camping, and camp out of your car. And it, it takes less planning and less skill set when, when the moment starts mm -hmm. and you just want to go. So, Michael, you've given us a good idea of what the survey has to say, and it's exciting that it was, it was actually conducted, and it seems like a lot of people are interested in camping, particularly if it's Scouts Canada approved in a way. What is your most epic campsite? You personally, Michael. Um, my most epic campsite is actually going to Algonquin Provincial Park. It, the, the scenery is unlike anything else. I'm from Toronto, so we don't get a lot of that pure, untouched wilderness like you can get at Algonquin. Um, it's right on the Canadian Shield. It's got canoeing. It's got lakes. It's got hiking. Really, whatever you want at camping, it's there. Uh, like I mentioned before, I'm an avid canoeing camper. But if that's not your thing, they have car camping, they have a nature center, they have like interpretive programs that you can go to. Whatever your level of expertise is, whatever you really, um, whatever you're looking for in a camping trip, whatever your comfortability level is, you can find it at Algonquin Park. And for someone like me who lives in the city, you're able to take the bus there, which is mm -hmm. great because I don't have a car. <laughs> Scouts Canada has had different looks over the decades. How would you describe it today? What what does it offer to our youth, our young people? Um, well, I know in my experience, it's really helped me to become a, a leader and to build the skills that I need for everyday life. Uh, I'm, I'm a business student right now, and I, I don't know if I would be where I am without scouting. It's really helped me 
specifically being able to, to plan and to be prepared. I know that's the motto, but it's really more of a, a motto. It's more like a lifestyle because everything I do now, I, I feel prepared because that's the mindset that I have. And it's co-ed. And what would the age range be, Michael, for Scouts Canada these days? Uh, yeah, so we have different age tiers. The lowest would be Beavers, so that would start senior kindergarten to grade two age. Uh, and then going up, uh, you age out at 25. So I'm still involved with the youth today. I think that's great. And you've done a terrific job. What a wonderful survey. And people can go online to find out uh, where people think that uh, that they should be going based on the Scouts Canada survey. Thank you, Michael, for joining us on the feed. What fun. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you're interested in finding out more, you can go to scouts.ca slash epic campsite. Uh, and it'll have all of our survey findings. It has an interactive map. It has uh, a list of some of our Scouts Canada-owned properties that members have access to, uh, and a lot more information on there as well. Oh, I'm so glad you ended with that. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for taking the time. Next, a walk in the park quietly with Kevin Frankish. You know, this past weekend, I went to Wasaga Beach and... uh, was hoping for a little relaxation, and as I lay there, uh, there had to be at least six different sources of music around me. And I'm not just talking, you know, low volume. I'm talking, they were blaring. And needless to say, there was no relaxing. I like to go to beaches and parks and enjoy the quiet and the peace, because after all, isn't that why we go Well, I think I have a new best friend. His name is Matt Nicholson. He's the executive director of Quiet Parks. And I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about this organization because I love it. Hi, Matt. Hello, hello. It's nice to have new best friends. I love that. (laughs) It is so true. Tell me about Quiet Parks. Yeah, Quiet Parks International is a a nonprofit we started a few years ago um, based on the idea that all living beings... uh, Humans, animals, birds uh, deserve quiet. And when we're talking about quiet, we mean uh, a lack of noise pollution. Um, and we believe that for a lot of reasons, a lot of which are, are really important and key to uh, who we are as humans and how ecosystems work as well. Yes, I mean, we're not trying to be like old fuddy-duddies here and say, all right, turn off that music, you youngster. But <laughs> it, it, it's just a matter of we go to a park, we go to a beach for that that rejuvenation and and to to sort of feel that we're a part of nature again. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, uh, speak for yourself. I am an old buddy, daddy. And I probably <laughs> turn off so am I. So uh, am I. But yeah, I think what's what's important is that um, noise is a problem in our world. We are all subjected to a lot of noise throughout our days, whether it be where we work, uh, where we play. As we travel, um, the world is a loud place, and we need places we can go to have that quiet not only because it's really good for our physical health and it lowers our stress hormones and allows us to have better cognitive behavior and all these things, but it's also really good for our minds. Um, and it's, it's, it's good for us in lots of different ways. So what is it you guys do? Quiet Parks International has a few different program areas. I'm the director of Wilderness Quiet Parks, so I look at uh, wilderness areas and, and areas of, of important natural and ecological concern. And I measure the amount of noise pollution in those areas and try and recognize places that have uh, very little noise pollution. Um, We also have program areas like we have an urban quiet parks program, and that looks to seek out quiet areas in urban settings that you can get to and experience the sounds of nature and less noise pollution. 
Um, and yeah, a bunch of other program areas we're developing as well. But again, it's all based on this, this idea that we should all be able to find quiet, no matter where we live, no matter if we're in a city, if we're out in the country, we should all have access to quiet um, as humans and our ecosystems need them as well to have effective communication and, and things like that. Help me understand what noise pollution is. Um, noise pollution takes a lot of different forms, but essentially it's any non-natural sound. Um, some of the most pervasive sources of noise pollution are obviously cars and airplanes um, and transportation sound. Uh, other forms of noise pollution that we hear often are like the sounds of industry, any sort of extraction or sorry, extractive industry, things like mining and um, oil refining, chemical refining, things like that. Those are also big sources of noise pollution. And noise travels for like crazy huge distances. Um, I've recorded noise pollution at distances of like 15 miles before um, the American here using miles. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, so noise pollution is a big problem. It travels, um, and when an airplane flies over a national park or a wilderness area, it's also flying over all the land around that. And it's important that we have places that are um, recognized for their quiet. And uh, I'm talking to Matt Nicholson, Executive Director of Wilderness Quiet Parks. Uh, he is speaking to me from Duluth, Minnesota right now. Uh, here in Canada, uh, Grasslands National Park uh, has it been nominated or you're about to include it in your inventory? Grasslands National Park has been nominated, um, and we've visited Grasslands National Park um, and collected a lot of data. Um, Grasslands is looking very promising. Uh, it is very quiet in Grasslands. Um, so there'll be more news on that, um, hopefully in the coming weeks and months. Um, but yeah, Grasslands is a beautiful place, and the staff at Parks Canada who work there, as well as all the community partners, have done a really great job of um, recognizing the quiet and stewarding the quiet there, for sure. Are there any other Canadian parks so, or locations that you know of that have been nominated or perhaps that you're considering? Uh, we are working on a lot of locations in Canada currently in a few different program areas, um, both urban and wilderness quiet parks. Um, I'm not at liberty necessarily to share exactly where they are right now, but there's a lot happening in Canada um, and our, we have a Canadian representative who's a, um, a really phenomenal composer by the name of Jonathan Koshuk, who uh, currently lives uh, over in BC. Um, and we're working really hard to identify a lot of places, and he's doing a lot of great work. So we're really excited about what's happening in Canada. There's, there's a lot of cool stuff. And with urbanization, uh, it takes longer and longer to find quiet places. Oh my God, tell me about it. That's my job. You know, it's like my, <laughs> how this looks is like I look at maps, I look at air traffic, I uh, bring high sensitivity microphones around places just to try and find quiet areas. And the bar is super low. Like the only requirement that I have for a wilderness quiet park, or we have, I would say, as an organization, is that it has a dependable, uh, what we call a noise-free interval of 15 minutes or more. And that doesn't sound like that much. You think lots of places would have 15 minutes of quiet at a time, um, but what we find is that that standard barely holds up at 99% of places around the world because of how noisy it is. So, it's, again, it's more important now than ever that we recognize places that don't experience a lot of noise pollution, so that way we can work to protect them, so that way future generations can experience quiet, and that way these uh, ecosystems stay as intact as possible. It's tougher and tougher, uh, you know, when it comes to music especially. For me, that's my biggest pet peeve. I, I can... I can stand a little bit of traffic noise. I can withstand those irritating little planes that fly over all the time. But when it comes to somebody who's playing music, to me, it's like smoking. I don't smoke. Ooh. I don't want you blowing smoke in my face. 
why are you subjecting me to the music that you seem to like, you know, as as loud as that? But but then I'm concerned, and I use that term fuddy-duddy off the beginning. All of a sudden, I feel guilty because, oh, what's the problem with me? Am I just an old fuddy-duddy? No, I like my <laughs> quiet. Please, if you want to listen to music, put your headphones on. Totally. And I think it's, that's, it's the idea about, like, prioritizing your experience over the experience of other people in a public space or in a shared space. Um, just like the reason why we don't have smoking in restaurants anymore is the same thing about noise pollution. Is that um, we should be able to choose when and where we're subjected to that stuff. And if you want to choose to be a smoker, you have that right. Um, but you can't subject other people to that. I think the the music, it's always a really funny thing to ask people about how they feel about people playing music while they're hiking or, or while they're relaxing on a beach. And again, I like music. I'm a musician. That's how I actually got my start in sound was through music. But I think there's a time and a place for music, um, just like there's a time and a place for airplanes and cars and all these other things that we, we know and love. Um, but in the middle of like wilderness areas and uh, natural settings, I think we're trying to bring more awareness to the fact that nature's playlist is much better than yours, I think. <laughs> I like that. Uh, am I being alarmist and saying we're in a crisis, we're in a noise crisis? I don't think that's alarmist. Um, I think there's a lot of crises happening. Um, the There's a crisis of a lack of listening, I think. Um, and that has to do mm. with noise. Um, noise is the reason why none of us are listening, the reason why we're all walking around with noise-canceling headphones, so I think noise is causing a lot of problems. And the World Health Organization has a lot of information about all the levels of noise we're subjected to, which are unhealthy. Most of our population doesn't actually sleep in a room that meets the World Health Organization's criteria for what a healthy night sleep should be in terms of noise level. So, yeah, we got some work to do for sure. All right. Uh, Matt Nicholson. Uh, the executive director of Wilderness Quiet Parks. You can go to quietparks.org. And actually, you you even uh, offer to allow people to volunteer for you. Uh, we do. We're always looking for volunteers. Um, how we find quiet places is people reach out to us and say, hey, this place is quiet. So if you have a quiet place that you want us to check out, just email me, matt at quietparks.org, um, and you will talk to you know, you'll talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's wonderful. Uh, I think you are uh, doing as much as the national park system is in preserving our nature uh, for future generations. Uh, thank you for what you do. I appreciate it. I like to um, recognize that the National Park Service and us work really closely together, and we are very dependent on them for a lot of this work. So uh, we're just trying to help out where we can. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on. Well, I hope you have as much luck with Parks Canada as well. <laughs> thanks. All right. Matt Nicholson speaking to me from Duluth, Minnesota. From a quiet park to the comfortable silence of a library, and this one really stands out, Shaliza Bacchus is our tour guide. An amazing new addition to the Richmond Hill community is attracting not only attention, but awards, too. They've got a new library branch, and it is receiving honors and acclaim from across Canada for its strong commitment to modern, sustainable building practices, as well as functional design features that support the growing Richmond Hill community. I am talking about, of course, the Oak Ridges Library, and it is the latest recipient of the Ontario Library Association's new building award. The library actually received the award at the beginning of July, and today I am joined by Chair of the Board for the Richmond Hill Public Library, Greg Barrows, as well as the Branch Manager for the Oak Ridges Library, Karen Wales. How are you guys? 
Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me. So, Greg, I'm going to start off with you. Can you tell me about uh, the award that the Oak Ridges branch has received? So I'll, I'll tell you a bit about the, the, the branch first. In the early 70s, 71, for example, um, Oak Ridges Library began just as an outreach library. The Oak Ridges community, of course, is the north end of Richmond Hill. It, it soon got some traction. It then went into a small building shared with a volunteer fire hall. Then it moved to a library in a plaza, which was there for quite some time. The plaza was cramped and the community grew quite rapidly. And at the library board, we recognized we need a proper size library. And the Oak Ridges Library was, was born, the idea, it was designed, it was built, it was in consultation with the residents of Oak Ridges. Through every step, we were looking at how do we honor the commitment to green along with the growth. We're on the Oak Ridges Moraine in Oak Ridges, so it was really important to get that right. Um, and it's turned out, as the award says, to be just a fantastic library. And, and our manager, Karen, there is doing a fantastic job with that. Thank you. In, in regards to the, the actual um, building award, um, it's presented every three years um, to new library buildings in Ontario um, that showcase excellence in design, sustainability, um, technology advancement, and community development. Um, so we submitted a uh, proposal uh, or a submission for, for the award, and um, we were judged um, by a jury uh, that included uh, architects and, and looked at what we um, put into our building um, and to see if, if we would be a good recipient for the award or not. And we were very, very happy to, uh, to be given um, one of the two awards um, presented this year. Yes, and it's well-deserved. And can you tell me a little bit about the actual library itself? Because it's got some, some stunning qualities to it. Yes. As, as Greg mentioned, um, our, our previous library branch, uh, it was only 6,000 square feet. Uh, our new branch is now 19,500 square feet. So we significantly um, increased our space uh, because we needed it for, for our customers. Uh, we needed that space for collections and for, for study space. And um, we also added technology features, um, such as a makerspace. We have a dedicated makerspace at the uh, Oak Ridges uh, branch uh, so that we can uh, have our customers come in and create their own um, content, not just borrow the content that we had here for them to borrow. Uh, we also have a wonderful um, garden around the, the library, uh, which has native plants in it um, and a bioswale. Um, to help uh, take off groundwater um, and, and help in, in that regard as well. And we have a, a, a quite unique feature in, in what we call a barn door, where we have a big sliding glass door that allows us to open up the library and make our space visit, uh, bigger and allow um, indoor and outdoor use. And we were very happy to, to use that feature uh, for the first time when we did our summer reading launch uh, in June. Uh, and and that was that was very well received. So now we're we're looking for ways in which we can use that that uh, space uh, enhancement. That sounds amazing. Now is that the same as uh, the urban living room? Is that what you call that space, or is that a different space? No, nope, that is what we call the urban living room. And and because of the way that the building was designed um, by Perkins and Will, um, and the furniture that was chosen, that space is very flexible. Uh, we have our shelving on wheels. Um, we have furniture that's easily movable, 
So we, we moved all of the, the furniture that's in the space um, normally um, to make a big open space and had a, had a magic show in that area, um, which was very well received. Amazing. Now, can you talk to me a little bit about the growing community in Richmond Hill? I feel like this space, this upgrade was definitely needed. And how will this uh, new building award play on the maturity of the Richmond Hill Public Library? Well, I guess I can speak to that. Um, Oak Ridge is the the, the community at the north end of of, uh, Richmond Hill. I I like to say Oak Ridge is a, a little north, a little nicer. It is growing exponentially. Um, if you take a look at the amount of building permits that have been pulled from Richmond Hill um, City, it's been in the Oak Ridges area. Lots of infill, um, lots of um, multi-residential homes, very low rise, and it's an exciting time. People are moving there where if you were to look back historically in the 70s when the library services first started in Oak Ridges, it was a sparse, very slow population and, and there was a lot of still cottages on the Lake Wilcox area. But those are all gone. They're moving in. And the residents are just demanding a higher level of service from their library. And this building gives that. And I should say, uh, Karen is, is, of course, being very modest in, in the, um, the accolations that we've got. Not only are residents saying, wow, we love this, but also last year the Ontario Wood Design Award was presented to us by the Ontario Wood um, Council. And, and they recognized our, our innovative use of wood in the, in the building, um, kind of matched the Oak Ridge's public, the Oak Ridge's community center that was built on Lake Wilcox. And, and of course, this was also done with a LEED um, certificate. We got a silver. A LEED, for those who don't know, is Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. So we're collecting rainwater, we're collecting gray water, but we're trying to make the building as sustainable as possible. Some of the uh, materials for the building were sourced locally instead of having shipping, which increased you know, carbon footprint and all that stuff. So we're listening to residents and, and what they want in their buildings, and we're trying to, to give that back. And you know, we're just delighted with the uh, so far two awards. Uh, I suspect there'll be more. I mean, this is the award-winning Oak Ridge's Library. Yes, and all of these awards are definitely well-deserved. And now, Karen, I'm going to ask you first, and then uh, I'll go to you afterwards, Greg. I want you to tell me what you think your favorite amenity of the new library is and what you think uh, would be a drawing point uh, for residents to visit if they haven't already. We actually have so many uh, features. I don't know if I could pick a favorite. Um, We have some individual study rooms that our customers really like. Um, They're pretty much always full. Uh, they have uh, one wall that's a, that's a, a whiteboard, um, so they can they can do work while they're in there um, in groups. We have um, a green roof on top of our children's department, which is kind of cool. Uh, we have uh, a custom-built boat in our uh, children's area that the children like to play with, um, and we have some uh, um, meeting room space as well, which is which is very nice. Uh, and and we have windows and wood all around us so we get to we get to see um, where we're situated in the community as well uh, and and there's just so many uh, wonderful um, aspects to the to the new library our makerspace we're just kind of getting into place again now um, that the pandemic is is not quite so uh, in our minds uh, and uh, we have lots of new equipment that we want our, our customers to come in and use and Greg I think my favorite space in the library is when you first walk in the, the front doors and you turn to the right, 
we, we have this large space where there's tables and chairs, there's um, some bookshelves, but the, the really unique thing is that everything is on wheels and is able to be moved out of the way. It's a space where the community can gather, but it's a, it's a space where we can completely change it up and we can do larger events. And like we already spoke to, we've got the urban setting there. We've got those barn doors, and they're just these massive glass doors. I, I think the installer told us it was the largest set of sliding glass doors that they installed in Ontario at that point. Um, so you can then be indoors and outdoors all at the same time. I think that's my favorite space. But, you know, i got to say that next to that is the youth area upstairs. You go back, and there's a TV, there's video games. There's almost like a restaurant-type feel with, with tables and chairs and these little benches. And it's really a great space. You go up there and you see, you know, either people socializing, studying, reading. It's just a fantastic spot. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, Greg, maybe I'll ask you first, if uh, anyone wants more information on the Oak Ridges Library or the entire Richmond Hill Public Library, where can they go for more information? Just go to Google and type in Richmond Hill Public Library, Oak Ridges, and you're going to find a direct link to our website. All the information's there. But you know what? Even better, just get in your car, drive to Oak Ridges. It's the corner of Young Street and Regatta. And you'll be amazed when you first see it. It's, it's such a civic presence there, um, something that you know really kind of created a bit of a landmark that I'm sure people from years from now will, will be talking about. Yes, and we're definitely talking about it now. All right. Greg Barrows, Chair of the Board for the Richmond Hill Public Library and the Branch Manager for the Oak Ridges Library, Karen Wales. Thank you both so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thinking of running in the next election? Stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. If you're contemplating a run for office in the next municipal election, here's Tina Cortez with your need to knows. There is an election on the horizon, this time municipal, on October 24th. But if you're thinking about throwing your hat in that political ring, well, the deadline is coming up later this month. With the details, we're joined by Todd Coles, City Clerk, City of Vaughan, and Tara Legevardi, Municipal Clerk, Director of Legislative Services, East Willenberry. So, Tara, let's start with you. Tell us about the administrative process of running for a municipal office. What exactly does a person have to do? That's such a great question. Um, so in the town of East Guanabari, if someone would like to run as a candidate, they have to file some required forms in person with our election office by appointment. Usually when an individual comes in for their appointment, we would ask that they provide identification. They would have to complete a nomination form and uh, accompany that with an endorsement of nomination form. So they will need 25 signatures on their endorsement. There is some fees associated with running for office. So um, if they are interested in seeking a councillor seat, they would have to pay $100. And if they would want to run for the mayor's position, it would be $200. Right now, I can tell you that nomination is open until 2 p.m. on Friday, August 19th. Not that far away with the election in October, that's for sure. Todd, what types of opportunities are available and how would these positions affect or impact our daily lives or our communities? Well, Tina, and at the city of Vaughan, and, and the positions will be uh, 
different with each municipality, but um, we have one mayor's position, uh, we have four local and regional councillors, and we have five uh, ward councillors. Uh, in addition to the, the municipal council, we also conduct the elections for the school board trustees. So we have trustees for the York Region District School Board, the York Region Catholic District School Board, and the two French uh, school boards as well. So uh, lots of different offices for people to consider to run for. And in terms of the trustee positions, Todd, are there specific requirements for those roles? Yeah, with the you know with each school board, um, there will be some specific requirements. Uh, for example, to run for the York Region Catholic District School Board, you would have to be uh, uh, support the the separate school board on your property taxes. You'd have to be Roman Catholic. Um, similar requirements for the uh, for the French school boards as well. And Tara, what type of person or what type of experience would be required to run for a municipal office? So, uh, Tina, that's a great question. To be eligible to run for office, usually candidates have to be uh, a Canadian citizen. They have to be 18 years of age, a resident of the municipality that they reside in. For instance, in the town of East Gorlanberry, that means they would have to be a resident of the town, or they can be the owner, tenant of a land in the town, or the spouse of uh, such an owner or a tenant. They usually cannot legally be prohibited from voting, and they cannot be disqualified by any legislation from holding office. For example, um, they cannot be a judge of any court. There is really no requirement for previous experience as an elected official or a public servant for individuals that want to run for an office, but it's really important for candidates to understand what is to expect as an elected official. For instance, um, you know, the ability to work with a variety of different stakeholders a general understanding of legislation such as the Municipal Act and the roles and responsibilities of municipal elected officials, an understanding of council staff relationship, and really a recognition that they will be in the public eye. So that overall kind of covers a little bit about um, you know, some of the experiences that individuals would have to have in order to run for office. And you mentioned working in the public eye. I'm going to ask both of you this question, and, you know, especially in this age of social media, you know, many may be reluctant to even run for office, to consider it. Why, I'm going to start with you, Todd, why would someone choose a career in public life? Well, Tina, I I would definitely say that running for public office takes courage, uh, takes perseverance and conviction with the ultimate goal of bettering the community you serve. Um, I think for for anyone uh, running for office, they're looking for a rewarding opportunity to serve the residents of you know, the city of Vaughan or, or their community, and to to bring positive change to people's lives. Um, it would be someone who's, who's looking to make a difference by working to create and sustain a, an accessible and diverse and inclusive community for for all those who, who live in their community. Um, so, you know, ultimately, I would hope that any candidate running for public office is focused on on helping their neighbors and advancing the important issues uh, in the in the municipality, in the city of Vaughan, and elevating the quality of life for, for their community. Tara, what are your thoughts on this? I, I honestly will echo what Todd just uh, articulated, but what I would say is that really there are many reasons for someone to want a public life, a career in public life. Um, I think ultimately what it is is that communities need diverse voices to come up with innovative solutions to address municipal problems and opportunities. Um, This includes the desire to address issues or elite change, the interest in making a difference and working on policies that impact our neighborhoods and day-to-day lives. So really, it's a a wholesome um, opportunity for everybody to want to 
choose the reason to uh, enjoy at the uh, sorry enjoy a career in public life. You mentioned that the deadline to file papers is August nineteenth. Tara, if our listeners want to learn more about running for office, how can they do that? We have lots of information available on our dedicated egvotes.ca website. Uh, alternatively, I always encourage anyone who's interested to contact my office. We have a dedicated email set up for individuals to call us, or uh, sorry, to uh, email us, and it's elections at eastgualandbury.ca. And Todd, for the City of Vaughan? Uh, Tina, the best thing for potential candidates to do is review our, our webpage at vaughn.ca slash elections. Got our contact information, all the forms, reference materials, uh, all kinds of good stuff for, for someone considering uh, running for office. Thank you both for your time today and for sharing all of this information ahead of the August 19th deadline to file and, of course, the October 24th municipal election date. Thank you, Tina. Thank you so much, Tina. Jim Lang is next with why shopping local continues to strengthen small business. Thrilled to be speaking to Don Ludlow, the VP of Small Business Partnerships and Strategy at RBC. And, you know, lately, RBC did a survey suggesting Canadians are eager to spend more money at local and small businesses. I know I've seen evidence of that in the spring and summer. And Don, uh, tell us more about it, about the Canadians and us, our, our desire to like spend some of this money we haven't been able to at local small businesses. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And uh, and our survey found that in spite of these truly turbulent times, uh, a vast majority of Canadians really want to support their uh, local small businesses. In fact, 70% of Canadians plan to spend more at their local uh, local small businesses. So it's, it's really important for business owners uh, in, in their local areas to embrace that, uh, that goodwill. From, from your research from your department at RBC, Don, how bad was it for these small businesses in this country during the pandemic? Well, you know, uh, at the best of times, owning a small business is, uh, is challenging and, and tough, but also rewarding. And, and I think that small business owners actually developed a great deal of resiliency uh, throughout the pandemic and, uh, and learned, uh, learned many lessons, including, you know, always planning for contingencies, uh, maintaining, uh, you know, a cash reserve and, and investing for, for growth and efficiency. So, you know, businesses are, are in a, a pretty solid position now. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, have lots of opportunities to, to weather the storm with the support of their local communities. Don, I always think about what RBC does and what, with your department. It's not just, here's some money, go away. It's, here's some money, how can we help? So how do you help small businesses compete with the bigger box stores that, quite frankly, dominate a lot of communities in this country? Yeah, we've got all kinds of great tools and resources to help small businesses uh, survive and thrive and uh, in these times, uh, starting with owner, which is a great, uh, efficient, and fast way for uh, new entrepreneurs to register and incorporate, uh, to Moneris uh, Online, which combined with Bookmark is a great way to set up an e-commerce site. And then we have an award-winning tool, RBC Insights Edge, which helps uh, consumer retail businesses find new clients and uh, and grow their sales. And and you can find these tools and more on uh, on rbc.com and our Go Digital website and our RBC Small Business Navigator uh, site. Thrilled to be speaking to Don Ludlow, the VP of Small Business Partnerships and Strategy at RBC. And my kids, I have two girls in university and they're deep into social media and Instagram and TikTok and whatnot. And they show me videos and some of them are small businesses getting creative with social media to market themselves. Are, are we seeing a trend 
and small businesses using the digital universe to help sell their goods? Absolutely. It's really important for small businesses to diversify uh, where they're finding their customers and how they get their story out and discover new channels. So all kinds of opportunities to uh, embrace digital and social media to uh, to grow their client base, get their story out, and uh, through through digital payments and e-commerce, uh, reach new audiences and uh, and transact with them in a really convenient, uh, customer-friendly way. Through your in-depth survey, are Canadians responding to this social media push by these businesses? Yes, as long as it resonates with their values. And so one of the things that, mm. that's really come on strong in the past couple of years is the rise of the, the socially conscious uh, consumer. So, uh, you know, if a, if a business is seen to be authentically embracing things that are important to consumers like sustainability, uh, innovation, uh, social responsibility, and, and support for, um, you know, uh, Indigenous and people of color-owned businesses or members of the uh, two-spirited LGBTQ plus community, um, you know, these are really important to, uh, to consumers. And uh, it's an interesting dimension to the shop local but also shop with businesses that share their values. Yeah, and for a lot of us, especially Don, I think we're pretty much in the same uh, age group, but we grew up with our parents going to some small business, small family-owned hardware store or barber or things of that nature. And sometimes we forget, I, mean, I think for the listeners that don't understand from your background and your research at RBC, how much of an impact do small business make in the economy in this country? Well, I think that's it. And, you know, I guess one of the, one of the offshoots or lessons from the pandemic that that tended to keep people fairly local was understanding the real importance that that local businesses and business owners have to the community and the fabric of the community and their and their support to community. So I think people are are paying that back and continuing to show their love for uh, for local small businesses. You know, I, I know one thing we we tend to sometimes think well only young people access technology, but. Maybe it's through you and your staff at RBC, and maybe it's just that we don't give older people enough credit. But my wife and I have dealt with some clients and some services and vendors and shops and you know, you know local fairs, and some you know older elderly people running businesses, really dialed in, using the technology of their hands and their so it's cashless and all that. So it is making an impact on different people at different demographics to keep their business going. Well, it's never too late to grow and innovate and learn uh, new learn uh, business techniques and uh, and we have all kinds of ways to help uh, people digitize their business uh, again uh, on our uh, RDC go digital site you can learn all kinds of different ways to uh, adopt e-commerce uh, go digital with payments uh, and embrace digital processes uh, through partners that we have like uh, SureWeb and others you know the one thing with a lot of people are not clear about as much as we like to shop in person people still like the convenience of online is that something that as Canadians, we'll probably see more of that small businesses have to adapt to the in-person as well as being able to deliver the goods online? Absolutely. I, it's another channel that they have to grow and even online support to local shoppers and including curbside pickup and uh, and local delivery. So it's, um, you know, there's all kinds of different dimensions to uh, to this. And uh, and of course, people still like the, the personal touch. So people still like to go and shop within their neighborhoods and in the, and their local streets. And uh, and we love to see people in person too. So uh, we love to see uh, small business owners come by our branches or get a hold of us at our call centers and uh, and talk to us because you're never alone as a small business owner. 
Well, Don, you didn't get to be the VP of this department by just, you know, falling out of school and getting a job. You obviously been doing it for a long time. How, how much satisfaction personally do you get from seeing these small businesses that RBC provided some support to continue to work and thrive and survive in the, in the economy? Oh, I, I have one of the best jobs in the world. I, uh, I love uh, this work. I've been doing it for so many years, working with small and medium-sized business owners and really helping them succeed and uh, and just see them learn and grow and, uh, and thrive and, and make tremendous uh, contributions to our communities and local economy. In fact, small businesses are the backbone of the local economy. So that's just a, that's just a tremendous thing to be a part of, Jim. You know, Don, I, I have a few friends that have their own businesses. And the, the one thing, I mean, I, I guess you probably hear it as well, is finding good people to work for them. Is that something that will change the next six months to a year where it won't be so hard for these small businesses to get employees to help them? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think there's all kinds of things going on in the economy right now. Um, but there's also things that uh, that people can do to, uh, to recruit locally. And that includes, um, you know, making sure that they have great employee uh, you know, benefits programs and, uh, and, uh, and really support their employees to create a great work environment uh, and also encourage them to work uh, and uh, contribute uh, locally to their, uh, to their communities and businesses. When in doubt, rbc.com, you can go to rbc.com slash navigator and look at the small business navigator and all that you do. Uh, Don Ludlow, thank you for you and your team to aid, not just providing financial support to small business, but they're helping educate them to keep going. I mean, it is really the backbone of this country, and and you and your staff should be proud of the work you guys do. Thanks so much, Jim. Uh, great to be here today, and we, uh, we love what we do. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.